We open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In the first part of this epistle, the Apostle Paul lays down the truth concerning the sinfulness of man. Now in chapter 3, he continues that, but then in the middle of the chapter, he transitions to the great truth of justification by faith. Let's read the whole chapter together. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous, who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then, how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that what things soever the law saith, saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. We read God's word that far. Let's consider what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us in Lord's Day 23. On the basis of this passage of Scripture and many other passages of Scripture, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us this doctrine, Lord's Day 23, 
But what doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life? How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that, though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, Notwithstanding, God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us all the great points of Christian doctrine as revealed in Holy Scripture from the perspective of our experience of salvation, always from the perspective of our experience. And therefore, true faith in Jesus Christ is central to the very structure of the Heidelberg Catechism itself. In the first part of the Catechism, as we have seen, we are led away from ourselves. The Catechism leads us away from ourselves and from putting any faith whatsoever in ourselves, in our works, in our efforts, in our abilities, for righteousness before God. Because in that first part, the Catechism teaches us how great our sins and miseries are. The Catechism teaches what the Apostle also teaches here in Romans chapter 3, as summarized, for example, in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. But in the second part of the Catechism, being led away from ourselves, we are led to Christ. To Christ as the only one who was able to perform and accomplish that righteousness which can stand before God as the only one who has power to save us poor sinners. Christ becomes the focus of the second part of the Catechism. But then the Catechism asks, Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? And the answer given is no. Only those who are engrafted into him and who receive all his benefits by a true faith. And so from that point of the Catechism, this true faith becomes central. It becomes the launching point for the rest of the Catechism. And at that point, starting in Lord's Day 7, we are taught what true faith is. We are taught what true faith believes. We are taught where true faith comes from. We are taught that true faith is the only means by which we can experience and receive salvation. And not at all by any works that we perform. But then, in the third part of the Catechism, we are taught that we must indeed do good works not to be righteous with God, but because we're already righteous by faith. We are to do good works in thankfulness to God for all that he has done. So that leads us here to Lord's Day 23, right here in the midst of the Catechism, in which, as we have seen, faith, the experience of salvation by faith, structures the whole Catechism. And here we are asked this question, What does it profit thee? 
that thou believest all these things. What is the benefit that you receive by believing in Jesus Christ as he is presented in the Holy Scriptures, as he is proclaimed in the Holy Gospel? You believe in that Jesus Christ and you believe all the truths about him. What does that profit you? What is the benefit of that? And the answer given by the Heidelberg Catechism is the answer of Scripture. That I am righteous before God in Jesus Christ and an heir of eternal life. Here the Catechism leads us to the summit of the Gospel Mountain and teaches us what we may call the heart of the Gospel. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we are righteous before God and heirs of eternal life. So let's consider together under the theme righteous by faith alone the meaning of justification, the graciousness of justification, and the means of justification. We are dealing in this Lord's Day with the truth of justification. Justification has to do with being righteous before God. Now God himself is righteous. He is the righteous one. Righteousness is an attribute of his very nature. God is not wicked. There is no wickedness in God. God is perfectly, absolutely, and eternally righteous. And that does not mean now that there is a law above God and that God obeys that law and that God, in obedience to that higher law, becomes righteous as he is in harmony with that law above himself. There is no law above God. But rather, when the scripture says God is righteous, the idea is that God himself is the highest good. God himself is the fullness of all perfection, of all purity, of all holiness, And then when God is said to be righteous, then the idea is that God does everything. He thinks everything. He determines everything. All of his thoughts, all of his actions and works and ways are in perfect harmony with himself. As the highest and only good, God is righteous perfectly. But we are not righteous. Indeed, there is none that is righteous in this whole world. No, not one. There is a law. That law is God's law. That law is under God. It is the will of God. And the law of God expresses what it is to be righteous and what it is to be wicked. God's law commands us what we are to do and what we are not to do. And the scriptures teach us that after the fall of our first parents into sin, there is not a single man or woman on this earth, and there never has been, who is righteous in himself. Who is righteous by his own obedience to that law. Who is righteous by his own works of the law. No, not even one. There is none that doeth good. No, not even one. And that includes every single one of us sitting here this morning. As the Catechism puts into our mouths, my conscience accuses me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them. That's the confession that the Catechism in Lord's Day 23 puts into your mouth and puts into my mouth. Do you make that confession? My conscience accuses me that I have transgressed all the commandments of God and I have kept none of them and I'm still inclined to all evil. My conscience, my flesh, tries to object to what my conscience testifies. My conscience says, you're a sinner. You've transgressed the law of God. You've broken every single one of God's commandments and you know it. And you have not kept any of the commandments. You have broken them. You have served your favorite idols. You have bowed down to them and worshipped them and loved them with all your heart. You have not esteemed the name of God as highly as you ought to have esteemed it. 
but you have taken it in vain. You have broken the commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. You have not treated your neighbor with the love and the kindness that you ought to, but you have shown hatred. You have been angry without a cause. You have been bitter towards him. You have been proud and esteemed yourself better than him. You have coveted your neighbor's wife. You have coveted your neighbor's house. You have coveted your neighbor's possessions, his vacations, his things. You have told lies about your neighbor. You have judged him rashly and unheard. You have gossiped about him. You have backbited and slandered him. That's what my conscience says to me. But my flesh says, who, me? I've done all those things. I haven't done those things. I'm righteous. I keep the commandments of God. I'm a good person. I'm a really good person. You can't point out any gross transgressions in my life. But then the conscience comes back and says, Oh yes, oh yes, you've grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, and you're still inclined to all evil. And my flesh says, Well, maybe that was true in the past, but not anymore. But my conscience says, still, still you are inclined, still inclined to all different kinds of evil and wickedness. That's what my conscience says to me. And my conscience is right. What my conscience says to me is the same thing that the law of God says to me. As we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, We know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The conscience accuses me, the conscience condemns me, so that my mouth will be stopped. My conscience stops the mouth of my flesh and says, no, you're a sinner. You are not righteous in yourself. You're a sinner. By the law is the knowledge of sin. God is righteous. We are not righteous. But justification means God comes to us who are not righteous, and he says, you are righteous. That's justification. Justification means God comes to us unrighteous sinners and he grants and imputes to me the perfect righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Christ. So that although I have transgressed all the commandments of God, it is just as if I have not transgressed a single commandment It is just as if, in God's eyes, I have kept all the commandments perfectly with all my heart and all my soul in all of my life. It is just as if all that obedience that Jesus did, I did. And that's the great gospel truth. That's the great summit of the gospel mountain to which the Catechism leads us in this Lord's Day and to which the Apostle leads us in the passage we read after showing us how sinful and wicked and unrighteous we are, then he comes and says, but now, now, verse 21, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. The righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's justification. Justification is an act of God that takes place in the judgment hall of the universe, which judgment hall is found everywhere in the universe, including in your and my consciences. Justification is an act of God who is not only the divine lawgiver, but also the divine judge and the divine executor of the sentence. God sits 
in his judgment hall, the supreme court of the heavens and the earth. He sits behind his tribunal in awesome majesty and glorious righteousness, in perfection and beauty of holiness. The judge of all men stands there behind his throne of justice. And we now come before him and stand before him with all of the filthy rags of our sins and our unrighteousness as those who have transgressed his law, who are guilty, whose mouths have been stopped, who have nothing to say, who have no defense to give, who are worthy of judgment. And the righteous judge of heaven and earth looks down upon us and he raises up his divine gavel and he pounds it on his judgment seat and he thunders I find no guilt in this man. I find no sin in this man. I find this woman righteous. I find her perfectly, completely, and utterly innocent of all the crimes and all the accusations that may be made against her. I do not consider her or him to be guilty or unrighteous, but completely and absolutely righteous for time and for all eternity. That's what God declares. That's justification. He grants and imputes to the sinner the verdict of perfect righteousness. And we may stand in utter astonishment as he renders that verdict down upon us knowing how sinful we are. We stand in astonishment and we we want to ask the judge of all men, how can this be? How can you do this? How can you judge me to be righteous when my conscience accuses me that I've transgressed all of thy commandments and kept none of them? And then the judge smiles down upon us and he says to us, it's not because of anything you've done, but I judge you righteous because of the righteousness of my Son, Because I have provided for you my son, my beloved son, my only begotten son. I have sent him into your flesh, into your human nature. And I have taken all of your guilt and your iniquities and your filthy rags and I have imputed them onto his head. And my son whom I have sent into the world, bearing all those guilts and iniquities, has faithfully and obediently gone the way to the cross. And he gave himself to be nailed there on the cross with all your sins, with all your guilt. And he has fully satisfied all the demands of my justice. All of those demands. He fully satisfied them. He fully and completely suffered all of the wrath and indignation that you deserve. That's why I judge you righteous today. Because of my beloved son, who from the moment he was born until the moment he died on that cross, perfectly obeyed all of my commandments and transgressed none of them. Because of my son, who was righteous, righteous in his divine nature, but righteous in his human nature, righteous, completely, perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient. Because my son loved me when you didn't. He loved me with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind and strength. And the judge of all the universe looks down upon us and says, that's why, that's why I render this verdict upon you today. That's why I grant and impute to you righteousness. That's why my sentence to you is not guilty. That's why I make you worthy of eternal life. And then the judge says, now go forth today. Go home today justified. Go home today knowing with full assurance in your heart that you are righteous in my sight and you will be righteous with me forevermore. Go home today knowing that although you have sinned greatly and grossly, 
In my sight, it is just as if you have never sinned. It is just as if you have kept all my righteous laws, because Christ did that for you. Now go home and be at peace. That's justification. Oh, the graciousness. The Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes the graciousness of that justification. After telling us how gross of transgressors we are, the Catechism says, notwithstanding, God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me that righteousness. Without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace. That's what the Apostle Paul taught as well. Having laid out in this chapter how unrighteous we are together with all men so that our mouths are stopped before God, the Apostle says, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Without any merit of mine, Merit is a reward that someone earns through the work that he performs. That's merit. A reward earned through work. There is such a thing as merit in human society. One man works for another man. He agrees to work for that man, so he becomes employee, and the boss is his employer. And now when that employee works for his employer, he places that employer into a place of indebtedness because of the agreement that they have made. The employer is indebted to pay him when he has worked. By working, he has earned his reward. He has earned his paycheck. And that boss now has a duty, according to even the laws of the land, to pay him. The workman is worthy of his hire, even the scripture says. But there is no such thing as merit with God. Martin Luther said, Away with that worthless, impious word, merit. There is no merit with God. Not even Adam could merit with God. Certainly sinners cannot merit with God. Only one could merit with God, and that's the Son of God himself. We are not able to merit with God by doing the works of the law. And so when the Heidelberg Catechism says, without any merit of mine, you'll notice the Catechism is there teaching us the biblical teaching which we have seen in our Bible study, which we see in this passage that we read, which we see again and again throughout the Scriptures in many passages that we are justified without the works of the law without the deeds of the law. Romans 3, verse 20. Romans 3, verse 28. Galatians 2, verse 16. Philippians and elsewhere. Without the works of the law. When we come into the supreme court of the universe, as we are there right now today, our mouths are stopped. We stand guilty in ourselves. We have nothing to bring. We have no defense. We have nothing to say. We cannot come before this glorious, majestic judge carrying our works and say with us and say to him, please accept me because of these works. We cannot say to him, I know, I know, uh, I've done a few things wrong. I know I haven't been perfect, but I think I've done a pretty good job. I think I've done a lot of things right. I think I'm worthy of consideration. I think you might consider approving me and accepting me and giving me entrance into eternal life because look at the good life I lived. I can't do that.
There is no justification for those who come carrying all their works to God as a basis for righteousness and entrance into eternal life. There is no justification there. Our mouths have been stopped. The Catechism teaches us that it's without merit, merely of grace, purely of grace, completely of grace. Grace is the opposite of merit. Grace is an undeserved favor and free gift from God. Unconditional, unmerited, undeserved, freely, graciously given. And perhaps your dads or moms taught you when you were children, now just remember, nothing in this world is free. Nothing is free. Everything has to be worked for. Everything has to be paid for. And that's true in this world. But if we carry that thinking into the courtroom of God and think that since we must work in order to earn our check, therefore we have to work with God to earn salvation, we're sorely mistaken. Children, young people, brothers and sisters, there is something that's free. the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it, to merit it. You can't work for it. You can never put God into a position in which he has to pay it to you. He gives it freely. Oh, the graciousness of justification. There's nothing that we can do Often that's what we emphasize. There's nothing that we can do to merit that righteousness. That's true. There's nothing we can do. The gospel says, and there's nothing that you have to do to merit that righteousness. God doesn't place that burden upon us that we can never carry, that we can never fulfill. But God grants and imputes to me without any merit of mine, merely of grace, the righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Christ. Christ, he merited it. He worked for it. He shed his blood for it. He sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane for it, for you and for me. He suffered his blessed body to be nailed on the cross to obtain it. And now God gives it to us. He gives us that verdict of righteousness. The Apostle will go on to emphasize that too in chapter 4, the very next chapter. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you are working, you earn that reward. It's a debt that has to be paid to you. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In verse 16 of the same chapter, the apostle says, Therefore it is of faith. Justification is by faith that it might be by grace. It's by faith, so that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. If it is by works, then it is not by grace. It is of faith, that it might be by grace. We are justified by faith, faith alone. That it might be by grace. But then the Catechism asks, why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? What do you mean by that? And the Catechism answers immediately, Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. Not that. I'm not acceptable, I'm not justified and righteous because of the worthiness of my faith. 
Our mouths have been stopped. If we insist that justification is without the works of the law, but by faith, but then we say that justification by faith means this, that you have made yourself worthy of that justification because of your faith, then it's not gracious anymore. Then there's one thing that we must do, that we can do, and that we do to earn that righteousness. And that one thing is that we believe. And that would mean then that we come into the courtroom of God, the supreme court of heaven and earth, and we say, Oh, supreme justice, I know that I don't have any works that are good enough, but I bring my faith, and I offer to thee my faith. Accept me because of my faith. After all, look at all the other men in the world who are unbelievers. They're wicked and ungodly. They're unbelieving. They don't believe. They're not worthy of it. But I believe. I bring my faith. Then once again we're trying to seek approval and righteousness by something that we have done. God does not and will not ever justify a single man because of his faith. Justification is by faith, not because of faith. Not on account of the worthiness of my faith. Because justification is entirely gracious, entirely free, a free gift from God that only depends upon Christ and Christ alone. We are justified in the courtroom of God by grace alone. In Christ alone. And through faith alone. Through faith. By means of faith. Faith is the means of our justification. The Catechism asks, What doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? You believe that I am righteous in Christ. How art thou righteous before God? How? By what means? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous? By faith, and by faith only. Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. Because Jesus is, he is the only one who is worthy Jesus, he is my righteousness and satisfaction and holiness before God. He and he alone. And I cannot receive and apply that to myself in any other way than by faith. By faith. The means of justification is faith. But are not the elect righteous even before we believe? Are we not righteous already before the foundation of the world? It's true that before the foundation of the world, God determined to justify us. Romans 8, the same epistle to the Romans Chapter 8, the Apostle says there that whom God did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one. They're God's elect. God chose them. God predestinated them to glory. He predestinated to give them eternal life. He predestinated to justify them. That was his plan from before the foundation of the world. No one can thwart or frustrate the plan of Almighty God. 
what he plans to do, that he performs. And therefore, it's true from a certain point of view and in a certain sense. We were righteous already, that is, in the eyes of God, already righteous before the foundation of the world, in God's eyes, that is, according to his plan and counsel and purpose. Furthermore, according to that plan and purpose, God sent his son, his beloved son, into the world. And by the shedding of his blood and the laying down of his life on the cross, it was through that precious blood of the Lamb, there at the cross of Calvary, that God declared, you are righteous. It was there at the cross that God justified us. And that's what the Apostle means again in this very same epistle in chapter 5. When he says in verse 9, Much more than being now justified by his blood. We were justified by his blood. It was through his blood. It was there at the cross that God announced his verdict. Righteous. And so in a certain sense, it is true that we are righteous already at the cross of Calvary. But we did not experience God's eternal counsel, and we did not experience the death of Christ. We were not there. The question of the catechism is, this is the idea of the question, how do you experience righteousness before God? That's the idea of the question. As we saw in the very first sentence of the sermon, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches all the points of Christian doctrine from the perspective of our experience of salvation. And therefore, we have seen true faith in Jesus Christ is central to the very structure of the whole catechism. How art thou righteous? By faith. By faith alone in Jesus Christ. Imagine in a a worldly court of law, there's a judge. And he's thinking about a particular criminal. And he has a plan in his mind to acquit him. Is that man already acquitted? In a certain sense, he is. Because the judge plans to do it. Although even there, that's a human judge who could change his mind, unlike the divine judge who never changes his mind. But he has a plan to acquit. Then he also prepares and provides proper legal grounds for that acquittal. Is the man acquitted? In a certain sense, yes, he's already acquitted. The judge plans to do it. The judge has provided the legal grounds for it. But that man has not experienced it yet. That man has not yet received the verdict until he stands before the judge in the courtroom and the judge looks down upon him and says, and now I announce to you my verdict. I find you not guilty. Oh, the blessedness of hearing that verdict declared by the judge, declared to me. That's what justification is. We receive the verdict by faith. That's how we experience it, by faith. How does that happen? That happens when God himself, the judge, speaks through the true preaching of his gospel. Not a false gospel, but through the preaching of the true gospel, which presents the true Jesus Christ of the Scriptures, and which proclaims that Christ to us as the only way to be righteous with God, as the only one in whom there is righteousness for us. And then that preaching calls us to come to Jesus Christ and to believe in him, and to trust in him, and to embrace him as our only hope. That's when it happens. 
whether that preaching is on the mission field to heathen people who have never heard the gospel before or whether it happens here in the church to believers and their children, that's where it happens. The gospel proclaims Christ. The gospel calls us to Christ, to believe in Christ. And when the gospel calls us to believe, it also calls us to repent. It calls us to recognize, I'm unrighteous. I have no righteousness. So that I come to Christ. I embrace Christ. I believe Christ. How do I do that? How can that be if I'm so sinful? Well, because when God brings the gospel, he also sends the spirit of Christ with the gospel to work in the hearts of all of his children so that when they hear that gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they believe. They believe in the Christ proclaimed in the gospel as their only hope for salvation. When God, through the gospel, presents Christ and calls his elect to believe in Christ, that's when they experience justification. The child of God is already righteous before that from a certain point of view in God's counsel at the cross of Jesus Christ. But now, for the first time in his experience, If he is a heathen man on the mission field, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, for the first time he hears Christ in the gospel preached and proclaimed and the call to believe in this Christ, for the first time the Holy Spirit works in his heart and he embraces this Christ, for the first time he experiences that I am righteous before God. And for the little child of believers, who is just starting to understand something of the gospel, hears that declaration in the church. Could be at the little age of four, five, or six. We don't know. I don't know. I don't know when the Holy Spirit first worked that faith in me that I lay hold upon Jesus Christ in the gospel. But when he does that, he declares to his elect child, You are righteous, my little child. That child believes. That child embraces Jesus. And he or she experiences the truth of that declaration. He receives that verdict. What is it that we receive in justification? The Catechism says that by faith, We receive and apply to ourselves that righteousness of God. We receive. How can you receive that righteousness? It's not like receiving a piece of bread. You have something concrete in your hands, and with your hands you receive it and hold it. You can see it and touch it. It's not either like the spiritual power and grace of the Holy Spirit, which we also receive the power and the grace to do good works, to believe and to live a godly life of sanctification. It's not that kind of a thing. What we receive is a verdict. That's what we receive and apply to ourselves. When that verdict is declared, any unbelievers who are listening to that declaration, they're unbelievers. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. They don't receive the verdict. They hear it, but they don't receive it. Only those in whom God, through the gospel, works faith by which they rest in Christ alone and embrace him. By means of that embracing of Christ, They experience justification. That's a one-time act of God. But God repeats that verdict in the gospel many times. So that as we grow 
and we hear that gospel again and again and again. We're not justified all over again. But God, through the gospel, reminds us and reassures us of what he said in the past through the gospel. He reminds us and reassures us. He says, what I said before, I say again, I find no guilt in you. You are righteous. Go home justified. Go home knowing that you have peace with me. If justification is by faith alone, by grace alone, then where is boasting? That's what the Apostle concludes in the chapter we read. Where is boasting then? There can be no boasting. Only utter, humble thankfulness. We will never be able to boast in that courtroom. Our mouths have been stopped. We'll never be able to bring anything before God. Only to receive from him. So that all the glory will be unto God for the riches of his grace. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we give thee thanks for this blessed gospel. May it set us free. May it give us peace. May it give us joy and hope. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy grace. In Jesus Christ.